0: It's good to be with you on this Christmas Eve morning as we celebrate the birth of Christ together. And before we we turn to the passage of, of Luke 2, let us turn together in prayer to the Lord. God, our Father, we thank you for the birth of Christ. We thank you for this cause of celebration. And we thank you, Lord, for the, for the proclamation, the announcement of this good news that we find in your word. And I do pray, Lord, that all that follows would be faithful to your intentions to this passage, Lord, and that you would apply the good news, the gospel that Christmas announces, that you would apply it to our heads, to our hands, to our hearts, that we might rest more fully, more deeply in the gift of Christ Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you remember as, as we were reading, Luke chapter 2, it, it introduces us to a number of historical people, people from history, and about one of these people that we're introduced to, the following words are written. Listen to this. The providence which divinely ordered our lives created the most perfect good for our lives by producing this person and sending us a savior, who put an end to war and established all things. And when he appeared, he exceeded the hopes of all. And the birthday of the God marked for the world the beginning of good tidings through his coming. Sir big words, right? This, this announcement, it, it, it speaks of a figure who will work the most perfect good in our lives, one who is the savior of the world, who puts an end to war and establishes all things in the stability of peace, whose day of birth is the birthday of a God, and that day of birth is the beginning of all of these wonderful happenings. And so, who is this announcement speaking about? Well, perhaps surprisingly, this was not written about Christ. This was actually written about another person that we find in this passage, namely Caesar Augustus. These words are a gospel, a gospel. They are a good news, a royal announcement, a royal announcement of the birth of Caesar, of Caesar Augustus, of of the Roman emperor himself. Gospel means good news. In fact, it it was an official term used to describe an announcement of, of some event that was great and joyful and happy. And so when the angels speak here in this passage about good news, they are using an official government, an official royal term. Something has happened. Or more accurately, two things have happened. Christ has come into the world, and so has Caesar Augustus. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, is which of these comings, which of these advents, which of these events truly is good news of great joy for all people? And so let's answer that question by looking at this passage under two headings. Caesar as God, Christ as God. And let's look at both of those in turn, starting with Caesar as God. What can we say about Caesar? Well, like like many other ancient peoples and civilizations, the Romans, they often spoke about their rulers as godlike figures. The Romans often venerated their emperors as gods. And and absolutely, if, if Caesar Augustus is going to make good on everything we find in that announcement, absolutely, he can be no mere human. And what better reason what better reason for giving one person so much power over the known world than by affirming that he is a god? But what do we actually see Augustus do in this passage? He orders a census. He says that everyone in the Roman Empire has to be accounted for. And this shows us a few things about the supposed god. First, it demonstrates a kind of ignorance, a lack of knowledge He does not know his people, he does not know how many they are, and he does not know from where they're from. Secondly, it shows us his need. What is the ultimate purpose behind all of this? Well, it's for the purpose of taxation. It's a way for him to get more money and to get more resources from his people. The better he knows the demographics of his people, the better he knows the details about the people that he's ruling, the more efficiently and the more effectively he can tax them. He is a God that needs his people. He needs them in order to be godlike, to be rich, to be powerful, to be wealthy, to be well-resourced. He is a God who takes He is a God that we serve because he needs us. The point here is not taxation. We we expect a government to do this in some form. The question is whether this is fitting and worthy of a God. We have here a God who does not know his people and who needs his people. He's ignorant of and reliant upon his people. Yes, we we, we all know that this isn't fitting of a God, or at least it's not worthy of the one true God. And yes, we we all know that Augustus was, was only a mere human like any of us. But here's the very, very, very important thing. We all know that this isn't worthy of a God. But at the same time, we all think about God in this way. We all think of God as just a bigger and more powerful version of us. We all think of God in ways that are very similar to Caesar Augustus. When we think of God, we primarily think about our service to him. We think of what we must do for him. We even come to think that God needs us. We think that God needs our obedience and our resources. We think that God's reign and his rule depends on us as good citizens of God. We think of God as just a bigger version of Caesar Augustus. And so we come to relate to God like we relate to Caesar Augustus. How does that work out? Well, right, our our right relationship with Caesar Augustus, it rests on our obeying of his commands. In the same way, we think that our right relationship with God, it just rests on our obeying his commands. To be a good citizen of the Roman Empire, we must do this and this and that. To be a good follower of God, we must do this and this and that. This is what we expect from God. This is what we have come to expect from religion. When we say something like all religions, all roads lead to God, what we mean is that any good religious teaching will primarily give us advice and instruction and commands in the way that we should live. Religious teachers, they come and they tell us the way that we need to behave ourselves so that we can make our journey to God. They tell us how to be good religious citizens of God, just like the Roman citizens were meant to be good citizens of Caesar. And if that's the case, then then absolutely what God primarily gives us are commands. Do this, don't do that. Do that, don't do this. And if the primary message is about what you must do to be a sufficiently good person, a good citizen of God, then yes, it would make sense for any number of religious teachings to get you there. If it's primarily a matter of us coming to God by what we do and how we live, then absolutely any sufficiently good life, however you might calculate or define that, it'll get us, it'll lead us to God. Again, if that's the case, then what God gives us are commands. He tells us how to relate to him like we relate to Caesar. We are the ones who serve God. The burden and the weight of our life is all upon our own shoulders. That's religion as usual. This is religion as we have come to expect it. But here's the question, right? Right? How does any of this relate to the birth of this child? Where does that fit in and how is any of this news? How is this the announcement of some great and good thing that God has done for us? Because here is the key point. Good news, gospel is wholly different from commands or advice or instructions about what you must do. Consider an analogy. My kids are huge Cubs fans, and they're always looking for for good advice on on how to get autographs when we have a chance to go to a baseball game. And here's some good advice, right? Bring a marker, bring something to sign. It's pretty obvious, right? That's kind of like when you you get a baking recipe and someone puts an oven. Um, But nonetheless, you, you still need the marker, you still need something to sign, but you can do some other things too. You can get to the game a little early. You can get as close to the field as fast as you can right when the game ends. You can even stay late after the game to see if you can catch some of the players leaving the stadium. And all of this, this is good advice for getting an autograph. But what if a player called my kids before the game what if he said, I've made plans to find you personally at the game, to go over some drills with you, and to sign whatever you want? Is that advice? No. No, that's, that's news. Something has happened. The player has made plans to do this. This is not about what you should do. This is about what has been done for you. And this, this is what Christmas is about It isn't about advice or commands or instructions on how to find God and to come to him. No. It is the good news of God coming to us. Christmas is not a how-to. Christmas is a happening. But what exactly does that mean? Well, to answer that question, let's go to our second point. Christ as God. Again, Augustus needs his people. He does not know them And without their support, he would not be powerful. But we do see great, great power in this passage. It's just not from Caesar Augustus. There are two layers to what is happening here. Mary and Joseph are required to travel to Bethlehem because of the census. And this detail is hugely, hugely important. There was a prophecy made long, long ago before this event happened by the prophet Micah. He told the people through God that one day God's promised king and savior of the world would come from Bethlehem. And because of the census, today is that day. But that's not exactly the right way to put it. Yes, today is that day because the census forces Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem. So yes, the census is a cause here. But it isn't the primary or the ultimate cause. There's something deeper at work. Yes, the supposed God, Caesar Augustus, he calls for the census, but only because the true and living God has orchestrated all of history to have him do just this thing at just this time. This is all part of a much greater, grander, bigger purpose, God's purpose. As New Testament scholar Joel Green writes, one may call this ironic as if Rome is made unwittingly to serve a still greater sovereign. And here's the thing. While the census is an act of need for Augustus, it's an act of giving from the true God. The ultimate purpose of this census, God's purpose, is not for a false God to take from his people, but for the true God to give to his people. But what is that gift? What has happened and what has been announced in this good news? Or Recall the words of the angels to the shepherds. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And note a few things here. Yes, it is the year 2023, at least for a few more days. And yes, we are talking about angels. But if God exists, then the existence of angels makes perfect sense. If God exists, then reality is not limited to the material, physical world. If God exists, then reality is greater and grander, more mysterious, more enchanted, more charged with meaning than we often give it credit for. If God exists, then yes, the mystery and the wonder and the thrill of angels are exactly what we would expect. However, maybe you do think that reality is limited to the, to the physical and material world, and, and you are certainly not alone in that opinion. But please do realize what that entails. Please do realize what that means. Perhaps no one has put this better than Bertrand Russell, and he was one of the most well-known atheists and, and thinkers from the, from the past century. Russell says this of, of his position, the position of, of denying God, and of affirming only physical material reality. Russell says this, Man is the product of causes which had no provision to the end they were achieving. His origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. All labors of the ages are destined to extinction and the vast death of the solar system. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. If God does not exist, then yes, angels are absolutely ridiculous. But a lot of other things become pretty ridiculous, too. We might put great weight in our hopes, in our loves, in our friendships, in our family, and in a million other things that we, we believe are significant. But, but Russell tells us, remember, at bottom, this is all really just the, the accidental collocation and collision of atoms. Don't be fooled into thinking that it's any more significant than that. Yes, if God does not exist, then angels are absolutely ridiculous, But so, too, are most, if not all, of the things that we believe are important and meaningful and worth fighting for. However, if God does exist, then again, angels make perfect sense. Angels are exactly what we would expect. And what is it that the angels do here in this passage? They bring good news of great joy for all people. They come bearing the best of news. And this is not just news for some people. This is good news for, and so good news that applies to all people. No matter who you are, this news concerns you. This is not like, like checking some news website about some event happening halfway around the world that has no direct connection to you and your life. No, this is news like news of a diagnosis from your doctor. News like a call from your children's school about what happened to them in class that day. News like the announcement about a promotion that you've just recently received. This is news that concerns you directly. The angels announce news, not advice, and news that concerns you personally. And yet, at the very same time, it's it's also news for all people. It addresses each and every one of us, and it also does so personally. But how can this be for all people? It must somehow apply to all of us in our present condition. And this actually takes us back to the greatness of God. Recall that our expectation is to relate to God like we relate to Caesar. We serve him. We come to him by following his commands. And anyone who lives a sufficiently good life, however we might calculate that, can be understood as coming to God. Such people are sufficiently good citizens of God. Again, this is the basic idea that all roads lead to God. Again, since we are the ones that are walking the road, then any reasonably good road will do. We just have to live lives that are good enough. But really think about that. If we can be good enough to come to God, then God is not truly great. And that might seem like a strange thing to say, but but let me explain that. Let me unpack that. If God is truly great, then God is perfectly good and wise and loving and also perfectly just. But for God to be perfectly just, God can't just overlook or, or sweep under the rugs all of the ways that we have fallen short of the life that he calls us to. And what exactly is that life? What is the biblical ethic of life? It's this, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are called to love God wholly and fully all the time. We are called to love every human being in the same way that we love ourselves. This means meeting the needs of others with the very same concern and intensity that we meet our own needs and doing that all the time. This means being just as sad and sorrowful for the pains and difficulties and struggles of others as we are for our own. And this one might be the hardest of all. It means celebrating and rejoicing in the good gifts of others just as much as our own. For instance, this might take the form of rejoicing with your friend when they have received from some job or position or or honor that you were both applying for. And nonetheless rejoicing just as happily as if you had been the one who received it. This is the ethic that God calls us to. And first, please admit that this is a beautiful ethic. It is an ethic that should stir our hearts. However, I also understand that when you, uh, if you, sorry, if when you hear this, that you think this is just an absolutely ridiculous view of things. I completely understand if you think there's got to be a place for just being good enough. But to think that, please admit that you are rejecting an absolute and uncompromising notion of goodness and justice and community. If we can speak of being good enough, then we don't have to be completely ethical or just or good. And if we don't have to live out this perfect ethic, then God is okay with overlooking our injustices and our lack of love. He's fine with simply sweeping them under the rug. But if that's the case, then God is not perfectly just. True justice must address each and every injustice. And if God doesn't do this, then God is not perfectly just. And if God is not perfectly just, then God is not truly great. And if he's not great, then he is not the true and the living God. Absolutely. If God is not truly great, is if God is simply a good enough God for a good enough people, and we don't have to fulfill this perfect ethic, then yes, any road might well lead you to God. Any sufficiently good life, whatever we think that is, will do. But if God is truly great, if God is perfectly good and just, then we cannot come to God with our merely good enough lives and conduct. In our present condition, we cannot come to the truly great God. If God is truly great, then there are no roads that lead to God. But again, the angels do not announce commands or advice or instruction. They announce news something great and joyful has happened. And this happening is for each of us. Again, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is not the announcements of commands that tell us how we come to God. No, this is the announcement that God has come to us. If it is us who come to God, then we can look anywhere. Any sufficiently good religious teaching and life will do. But if it is God who comes to us, then we must look to where and how God has come. We must look here and here alone. We must look to this child. If salvation is God's doing, we must not look to what we should do, but rather we must look to the particular thing that God has done. The angels announce the good news of the Savior's birth. And to speak of a Savior means that we need saving. We must be rescued. God must do what we cannot. Again, Caesar calls for the census to take from his people. Yet in this very same census God gives to his people, he gives them the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. He is the God who needs nothing from his people. God creates us. God sustains our entire existence, every single atom in our body. Everything, everything we have is a gift from God. And here, as is always the way with God, we find that salvation, too, is a gift. How so? Well, because this child, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, is God become human. He is God to become human in our place. This child will grow, and he will live the life that we should have lived. He will love God and neighbor perfectly every single second of every single day, and he will do this in our place. This is good news, but it gets better still. While God gives, he does also take. But he does not take from us as Caesar does. He does not burden his people by taking their benefits. No, he benefits his people by taking their burdens. Christ will take the punishment that we deserve for falling short of this beautiful, wonderful, perfect ethic. He will die the death that we, not he, deserves, and he will do this on the cross. He will live the perfect human life in our place, and he will bear that punishment of perfect justice that we, that we deserve. For breaking that ethic. Christ alone will make it so that the truly great and perfectly good and just God can welcome a sinful people like us into his loving embrace. He will show that God is not only perfectly just, but also perfectly merciful. And right, these are two things, two characteristics that, that can only come together in Christ. Why? Because Christ is the God who forgives and welcomes us in perfect mercy. But he's also the God who takes upon himself the punishment of perfect justice. If God is truly great, if he is perfectly good and wise and loving, if he is both perfectly just and perfectly merciful, then Christ Jesus, God coming to us, is our only salvation. This is the good news of great joy for all people. This is the gospel. This is what is announced by the angels. This is the child who is born on Christmas. And this is not a God like Caesar. Our relationship to this God does not primarily rest on our service to him, but on his service to us. And if we place our faith in this child Christ Jesus, then we become by grace what Christ is by nature, a beloved child of God. Is there obedience here? Yes, absolutely. But this is not the obedience of a citizen to a Caesar. This is not the obedience of an employee to an employer. Those relationships rest on what you do. It is your obedience that establishes those kinds of relationships. Good works, we might say, come before salvation in those kinds of relationships. And again, this is religion as usual. This is the God that we expect. But this is not the true God who is Christ Jesus. Our obedience to this truly great God is like that of a child to a parent. Again, if we place our faith in Christ, we become children of God. And no child should be in a situation where they feel that they must do this and that in order to earn their parents' love and approval and delight. That would be an extremely unhealthy situation. And yet we often think about God in just these terms. No, in a healthy situation, children trust the guidance and instruction of their parents because they know that their parents will lead them into the way and the path of flourishing. They follow their parents' guidance, not from fear or guilt, not to earn their parents' delight or approval. No, they do so because they know that they are already loved and approved and delighted in. They know that they are children. They're not employees of an employer or citizens of a Caesar. They know that behind all of their service to their parents is the much, much deeper and the much, much more foundational service of their parents to them. This is the salvation that Christ offers. This is why the Christian comes to relate to God as their very father. We might say that the good news that the angels bring is that salvation, becoming a child of God, that comes before good works. Because of Christ, we obey our Father not for his approval or delight, but from the approval and delight of God, our Father, that Christ has already won for us in full. This is the good news of great joy. Christ has come into the world. God has come to us in Christ Jesus. And perhaps no one better captures this dynamic than St. Augustine. He writes this, O Lord, command what you will and give what you command. God has done just this in Jesus Christ, in this child, in this good news of great joy that is offered to all people. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the truly great God who gives. And we thank you for the greatest gift of all, your Son, Christ Jesus, whose birth we celebrate on this Christmas Eve day.